You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. The ripples set off by Donald Trump's election across the Atlantic are feeding into Europe's election cycle. I'll be talking to two of our correspondents, Lara Marlowe in Paris and Derek Scali in Berlin, about the Trump effect in France's election next year and in the rerun of Austria's presidential election in December. In both cases, candidates of the far right are expected to benefit from the tide of anti-politics sweeping the world. And I'll be talking to Hugh Linehan, our culture editor, about the seemingly irresistible rise of the far-right Breitbart news site and its former boss, Stephen Bannon, who has been appointed as Trump's chief advisor. What is Breitbart? First to Europe and the backwash from Trump's election. I'm joined by Lara Marlowe in Paris and Derek Scully in Berlin. Fears are being expressed that first Brexit and now Trump's election are providing an ideal backdrop for Marine Le Pen's bid for the French presidency next year. Apart from legitimising uh, of far-right politics, of xenophobia and economic nationalism, and the sense that perhaps this is a tide whose time has come, the leading candidates in France, Hollande and Sarkozy, both share the US candidates' deep unpopularity. Lara, how is the election going? At the moment, everyone is concentrating on the primary in Les Républicains, which is the mainstream conservative party. Uh, the first round is next Sunday, and then the second round, the runoff the following Sunday. Um, that, obviously, I mean, everybody is talking about, about uh, Trump's victory. Uh, but so far, it doesn't really seem to be aff- affecting the Les Républicains poll. And the reason uh, one can say that is that François Fillon, who's running a third in the polls, has, has made a very surprising leap of 10 percentage points in one week. And Fillon does not resemble Trump in any way. He's much more an, a sort of establishment conservative. So, so that doesn't seem to be working in, in that sense. On the other hand, uh, Alain Juppé, who is the front runner, who is most likely to be the candidate for Les Républicains, uh, has been, the French are saying, il se clintonise, he's clintonizing himself, because he's being portrayed more and more by his opponents as resembling Hillary Clinton. He's had decades and decades in government. He's, he's 70 years old. He's establishment. Uh, he's, a, he's a bit of a wonk in the debates, you know, goes into great details and masters all his subjects and so on and so forth. So it's probably not very good for Juppé. Uh, and then uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, the former president, who is running second in the polls for the uh, conservative nomination. Nation, uh, has really drunk jumped on the Trump bandwagon. Uh, Sarkozy, who actually had praised Hillary Clinton during the campaign, suddenly says, um, you know, we have to listen to the anger of the people, and I am against the elite, and I am the voice of the silent majority, which is a bit rich when he, he left the Elysee Palace only four years ago. Uh, but, but Sarkozy is trying to benefit from it. Uh, we'll see how that works. And both he and uh, Bruno Le Maire, who's running, I think, four in the polls uh, have both pointed out that uh, Trump was was expected to lose, and they're, and they're using this as an argument to say, don't prejudge, don't think that I'm obviously going to lose, because um, Trump has proved that that's not necessarily the case. And, and the subtext of the, of the uh, primary election, of course, is who best can take on Marine Le Pen, 
who's performing quite strongly in the polls. Absolutely, because all of the polls show that the Les Républicains uh, candidate will face Marine Le Pen in the runoff. Now, the real question, so far, the polls show that Juppé would defeat her, but not necessarily the others. When, if you had Sarkozy or François Hollande or anyone else facing Le Pen, she could win. And that seems to be the number one lesson that has, has been taken on by the French, is that Marine Le Pen could actually be elected president of France next May. Uh, and that really sends a shiver through a lot of people. Um, she says it herself. She says uh, what had been considered impossible has now become possible. Uh, the the uh, Combe Delis, the secretary general of the Socialist Party, said it on the day of the results. And Jean-Pierre Raffarin, who's very close to Alain Juppé, has also said it. So um, that is that is the number one lesson. It's a cloud hanging over the, 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 even the Republicans' uh, election. Now, the, the, there is something quite odd about this primary, though, too, isn't it? It's a bit like the British Labour Party, uh, its own uh, internal election, which allowed everybody who wanted to to come in and vote. So a lot of socialists, apparently, are going to come in and, and vote for Juppé. This is Sarkozy's argument. He's, he keeps saying it won't be fair. And in a way, uh, the, he resembles Trump when Trump kept saying he would reserve the right to contest the results. Sarkozy, by saying all along, uh, this is not, you know, this is not fair to let uh, left-wing people vote, you know, choose the right-wing candidate, he seems to possibly be preparing to contest the results. If, if, if he loses, well, if he loses in the runoff, uh, he may very well say, um, we have evidence that X percentage were actually not conservatives at all, they were socialists, and therefore I declare the results invalid and so on. But that would totally weaken his camp if he did that. If, if he went as an independent, then stood as an independent candidate, he would be um, sabotaging the chances of Les Républicains. So that wouldn't go down well either. Uh, but it, it is an issue, yes. Now, Derek, will you explain to us, uh, remind us of the background to, to the rerun of Austria's presidential election? Yes, many people are thinking that the Austrian election, um, with the presidential election coming up on the 4th of December, could be the first indication of whether or not this Trump um, Trump triumph has sort of caught fire on this side of the Atlantic. Um, the first election was in May, and the a, a candidate backed by the Green Party finished narrowly ahead of his rival from the Populist Freedom Party. But because of various confusions, including over how the postal vote was counted, uh, Austria's highest court said, you must rerun this again. Now, they tried to rerun it in September. It failed because of uh, glue on the postal votes wasn't sticking. So in December 4th, we have basically the rerun of the rerun on and um, it's really too close to call at this stage. We've got um, Alexander van der Bellen, sort of a, a Tweedy professor type who's the green-backed and sort of the establishment-backed uh, candidate, but he's uh, running slightly behind um, Norbert Hofer, who's from the, the Freedom Party, the FPU. This is the party you may remember uh, was Jörg Haider's party back in the day in 2000 when they entered a government with um, the Conservatives in Austria and caused a wave of sanctions against Austria. So these, this populist party is now the largest party in Austria, and they're hoping from a bounce from the Trump effect, they're sort of hoping that the, the inhibitions of voting for a far-right candidate um, have now diminished because people are voting for Trump and suddenly it's all right. Um, Mr. Mr. Hofer has very much presented himself as a moderate. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not a, an attack dog far-right candidate. He doesn't really need to be because the leader of the Freedom Party um, Heinz-Christian Strache, he's the attack dog. So Mr. Hofer is presenting himself as the respectable face 
of far-right populism in Austria. And Austria has always had sort of a tendency for this sort of undercurrent of nationalist um, um, thinking in politics. So he's hoping to tap into that and he's hoping the Trump effect will uh, boost his campaign. But the main themes of the election are... are uh, immigration, the, re the refugees, and and uh, the European Union, and on on both of those, I think he he would share uh, very many common themes with with Marine Le Pen in 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 France, and he wouldn't be that moderate on those. No, but uh, in Austria, this is all considered quite moderate to be um, to be sceptical of refugees. Uh, I mean, the Austria has was really the front lines of the refugee crisis last year. Anyone who walks around. Uh, Vienna can send sort of the Balkan influence. So people have been living on the front lines of migration from uh, southern Europe and uh, south uh, southeastern Europe, and also from northern Africa. So and um, people in Austria, the views of what is considered, um, you can say in polite society in Austria, but refugees or immigrants is far different from what we would consider. But uh, they would say, well, we're dealing with it. And countries like Ireland and Britain are just, or definitely Ireland, have a very different reality. So you can get away with a lot more. And the Freedom Party is is uh, is, is really been, it's the granddaddy of populism in Western European politics. So it has slowly ground down what is considered respectable and what is considered unacceptable. So that uh, Mr. Hofer, while he might seem to our eyes quite a, quite a far out candidate uh, in Austrian political debate, all the other parties have been playing catch up with the Freedom Party for the last uh, 10 years. And, and so he's defining the, the agenda for, for the election. Indeed. And the rest of the, I mean, there are some good reasons why Austrian voters are backing him a bit like in, in the US. Um, Austrian voters are just tired of the two main parties. Austrian politics has been dominated by a conservative party um, and the uh, the People's Party and the Social Democrats. And they've basically been in one coalition, one grand coalition after another for pretty much most of the post-war period. And people are saying this has led to complacency. This has led to this entitlement culture, all of the type of things that uh, Trump was tapping into. Now, whether or not Mr. Hofer, who's a career politician for the last years, whether he can play himself as the anti-establishment candidate is another matter. But the Freedom Party, like Trump, have been, they went big and early, uh, they went big on social media, and they have been pushing the, you know, we represent the common man, those people up in Vienna, and so on. So huge similarities. And uh, after Trump's victory, an FPU delegation flew immediately to the US to meet with the Trump camp. So um, there's probably some uh, cooperation going on in the background there. So the vote on December 4th seems to be, uh, how annoyed are you with the Austrian establishment, the political establishment? And are you so annoyed that you would actually vote for Mr. Hofer, who would be um, Europe's uh, first post-war populist head of state? Lara, similar themes in, in, in France. Yes, people are more than fed up with the socialist and the, the Les Républicains, who used to be the UMP, of course. Um, and, and this anti-elite rhetoric goes down very well. There are a lot of similarities between the National Front and, and Donald Trump. I mean, Marine Le Pen has received huge bank loans from the Russians. She's gone and spoken in the Duma. She admires uh, Vladimir Putin, as Trump does. So both leaders are, are, are close to the Russians and Putin. Um, the, all of the studies that I've seen have shown that uh, Trump's voters are mainly 
mainly white and have a relatively low level of education. That's exactly the same for Marine Le Pen. Um, they also tend to be rural uh, voters, uh, and, and whereas the urban population voted for Hillary Clinton, uh, in France also the people who vote for the Front National, uh, Marine Le Pen's party, are outside the big city centers. Um, the, the, the studies show that the level of education is much more important as a factor than the level of remuneration. In other words, you can be earning a good living, but if you've only got a, a, a secondary school um, diploma, you're more likely to vote for Marine Le Pen. Um, also, um, the, the same motivations, I mean, they reject globalization, uh, they reject immigration, multiculturalism, elites, uh, and the media, this distrust of the media, which is, is very intense. Uh, you remember Trump even calling on his supporters to beat up journalists, that sort of thing. Uh, it's a very similar feeling sometimes at, at uh, National Front rallies in France. Uh, but most of all, just this, this feeling that they want the country to be closed in to be homogeneous uh they want it protected they want the, they want their country back they want the old days back again i mean that i think is it really sums it up and that's what uh trump voters and national front voters have in common and and of course the national front in in france has made great erosion on, into the um old Socialist Party and Communist Party uh, voting blocs, uh, the, the in industrial workers who've been left behind by, by the crisis in manufacturing industry. But there is a very strong tradition within the left um, that says that if it comes to it, they will rally behind a, a centre-right candidate uh, to defeat the National Front. Is, mm -hmm. that, is that prevailing? Did the, did the recent regionals show that that is holding up? Um, that that the, the left mm, it was will mixed actually in, in last uh, December's regional elections, it was very mixed. Some of the people like uh, Xavier Bertrand, I mean, some some of the the mainstream conservatives uh, said they would vote for a socialist, and others said they would not. Um, actually, it, it was better. The socialists were more loyal about voting for the right than the contrary, if oh, that makes oh, sense. Yes, um, and you know, this was how Jacques Chirac defeated Jean-Marie Le Pen, Marines father in 2002. And what you saw then was uh, socialists going to the polls, wearing rubber gloves and clothespins on their nose to show they weren't happy about it, but they were determined to block the Front National. Um, they call this the, the, the Republican Front, this, you know, voting for whoever is best placed. And, and that is certainly the argument within Les Républicains. You have to vote for the person best placed to defeat Marine Le Pen. And, and uh, Juppé, the poll shows Juppé is, but Sarkozy argues that he is because he's listening to all these complaints. So, I mean, French politics is in such, a, such disarray at the moment, especially the left, um, that it's, it's very hard to predict what left-wing voters will do. I hear around me a lot of people who voted for Hollande in 2012 who, who were ready to vote for Juppé now. Uh, so I, I think you will see a kind of massive shift of voters, uh, not necessarily a long-term adherence to right-wing ideology, but just this feeling that this is the least of evils and this is the best way of blocking Marine Le Pen. And Derek, you were talking a bit about how the FPO and has 
made contact with Trump supporters. But it, within Europe, are, are the right-wing populists, do they get on with each other? Uh, are the Austrians talking, for example, to the, to the uh, Poles and the Hungarians? And, and tell me, is Germany also likely to be infected by this tide? Yes, uh, the, on the first issue, it is always funny at the start of the last European Parliament, I do remember musical chairs uh, among the right wing populists, you know, who wasn't going to talk to who, um, sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend and so on. There were so many fluid alliances there, it was actually hard to maintain an overview of who actually likes who, who thinks the other person is actually bad reflection on themselves and best kept at arm's length. So um, at the moment, it seems to be that the um, the Freedom Party in Austria and Gerd Wilders in the Netherlands and Marine Le Pen, they all seem to get on famously. And then other parties are a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, kept at arm's length, uh, particularly in Austria, uh, particularly in Hungary and in Poland. I think Western Europe, they seem to think they're not quite kosher. Um, but um, on the issue of Germany, yes, we've got elections coming here, um, state elections coming up in North Rhine-Westphalia, which is home to one in five German voters, so a massive uh, electoral barometer. That's coming up next May, around the same time as in France. Uh, and the, the uh, alternative for Deutschland, this alternative for Germany, right-wing hard-right party that came out of the Euro crisis and it has branched out to sort of be an anti, anti-elite, anti-immigrant party, they're probably going to do very well there. They've, they're already in half of Germany's state parliaments. And then, of course, the big one, September, uh, the federal election and the big question, will Merkel run again? In a month, in three weeks' time, actually, she has to tell her party conference here in Germany whether she will run for fourth term. And some people are actually already saying that uh, Trump's win may have actually given her a, a bit of a boost. Now, she looks exhausted, and she probably is exhausted after all of these years fighting crises, but um, whether German voters would go for an experiment the way they seem, the way, the way they view uh, US voters have with Trump, that seems unlikely. Germans in time of crisis or in times of uncertainty like to go for the incumbent. So Trump's victory in a bizarre way may have boosted her profile and um, with uh, with uh, Barack Obama in Berlin this week visiting Merkel, there could be a sort of a, a sort of a, a handing on of the torch from one respectable Western leader to another, um, and it'll be very interesting to watch that. So, in a bizarre way, all of this may be good for uh, Angela Merkel if she chooses to run for another term, but definitely the alternative for Deutschland, this uh, up, upstart right-wing populist party in Germany are rubbing their hands. They're saying this is the beginning of a new era. And they sent uh, one congratulations telegram after another to Donald Trump. Thank you very much, Lara. And thank you very much, Derek. We'll be back in a moment talking to Hugh Linehan about the rise of the Breitbart news site. You're listening to the Irish Times. Now to Breitbart. Hugh, what is this site and what role did it play in the election? Well, I think when we talk about Breitbart.com, which has now assumed this sort of global news significance, I'd say, I suspect somewhat to the surprise of some of the people involved in it, you kind of need to look at it, first of all, as a media story. And the story of media in the United States over the last 25 years or so now is one of continuing kind of disruption and insurgency from various quarters. Those who are familiar with American media may, may be aware that actually up until the late 1970s, 1980s, it was a very safe and settled water because of long-standing federal regulation of the broadcasting industry and also to some extent because of the way the newspaper industry had developed with only one or two major newspapers in each metropolitan centre. These were all very profitable media industries and were quite settled in, in their own way. And people who've seen American 
American newspapers are sometimes a little taken aback by, in terms of their presentation and the way that they present the news, how, how slightly old-fashioned they are compared to the way that we do these things here or, or in the United Kingdom. A number of things have happened over the last 25 years. The first one, um, the first sign of insurgency, I suppose, was in AM and then FM radio in the 70s and 80s and the, the emergence of shock jocks and right-wing radio presenters such as such as Rush Limbaugh. That's followed then by the cable television explosion in the 80s and 90s and particularly by everybody will be familiar with Fox News, which has been the most successful uh, news channel and despite its claim to be fair and balanced in all respects, that doesn't really hold up to scrutiny when you look at its political positions in most areas. And then, of course, the, the most major disruption that media has faced in a century is the impact of the internet and that's the context within which we have to look at Breitbart.com, the emergence of political sites, political websites, many of which started as blogs or just as links to other content on the internet by people like Ariana Huffington and by Matt Drudge and his Drudge Report. People in Ireland are probably more familiar, a lot more familiar with Huffington Post than they are with the Drudge Report, but the Drudge Report has been extremely influential in American conservative and right-wing circles for, for nearly 20 years now. Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart, worked both with Ariana Huffington and with um, and and with Matt Drudge of the Drudge Report in the early years of those sites. He was a, a conservative columnist, journalist, author who wrote about culture and wrote about politics. And as happens in these worlds, uh, at a certain point, he launched his own website, Breitbart.com. It seems to be a, a, a facet of this particular phenomenon that that the the sites are named after the individuals very often. And Breitbart.com was like the Judge Report, largely an aggregator of other opinions and bits and pieces from around the web. It was uh, it was in your face, though. It was even more in your face than Fox is or than, than the Judge Report was. It railed against big government, big Hollywood. Um, Breitbart himself was, was, was from California and, and generally an elite liberal progressive establishment from a right wing conservative point of view. And was, you know, a relatively small phenomenon up until uh, Andrew Breitbart died uh, at a young age, the age of 41, only four years ago, at which point it was taken over by Steve Bannon, who is in the news now. Breitbart was very explicit that he was waging war, he said, on the liberal establishment. So it it was a... Uh, while some of the site is, is clearly... Uh, deliberately provocative and, and 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 actually can be quite funny in its provocation of sacred cows and and, and the like. It has a profoundly right wing, uh, quite uh, political agenda of what's called alt right uh, variety. You know, what is the alt right? Yes, well, I think I think it's important to say that a lot of people who were associated with Breitbart and the original Breitbart.com up until his death in 2012 do feel that under Bannon that, that the website has changed its political complexion quite quite significantly towards this, as you say, this alt-right perspective. The alt-right is, I suppose you could say, it's on the fringes of, of conservatism in the United States. It, it occupies the hinterland between what traditionally has been seen as legitimate forms of political expression on the right of the Republican Party and what have been seen as illegitimate forms of political expression verging into areas such as white supremacism and the, the Ku Klux Klan and all that that, that, that that noxious tradition which goes back a couple of centuries in, in American history. And the alt-right kind of sort of stra straddles the two. Uh, it it 
it it seems to me that it claims uh, legitimacy for that for that position increasingly from what it sees as the democratic coalition which has emerged in the last fifteen years or so uh, uh, a coalition of big city liberals um, trade unions although that's not looking so good these days and also um, certain ethnic minorities and so therefore uh, to put it in a nutshell and they'd probably think I was being unfair to them but I'll, I'll fire ahead and do it anyway they kind of say that if it's if it's if it's okay for liberals and progressives to talk about black identity, to talk about gender identity, well then why isn't it uh, okay for people who are white Americans, or indeed, and indeed white male Americans sometimes, uh, to talk about white heterosexual male identity on the same terms and to arrogate the same rights to themselves? Uh, politically, if you look at the, the, the there's, a, there's a whole range of political views on the, uh, on the American uh, right, particularly in the Republican Party. They range from evangelicals to uh, uh, what are called neoconservatives to uh, old-fashioned populists uh, of, a, of, a, of a sort we haven't really seen for, for, for some time. Where does, where does the alt-right fit in, in that spectrum? And they're, they're economic nationalists, uh, isolationists. They are economic nationalists, and I think one of the most controversial um, parts of Steve Bannon's involvement, both as both both in the Trump campaign and in terms of some of the material on Breitbart.com, is an economic analysis which uses phrases like global conspiracy and oligarchy and those kinds of phrase, those kinds of phrases about the uh, the construction of the neoliberal you know late capitalist econ- economic order and. Bannon and Breitbart.com have come under attack from organisations such as the Anti-Defamation League, that these are tropes which are most familiar in media from um, from, from anti-Semitic uh, publications. That there was, a, there was a, a TV ad, for example, which Bannon is supposed to have been instrumental in putting out very late in the, in the presidential election campaign, which pointed at some large financial backers for, for, for Clinton, such as George Soros. Uh, all the names which were mentioned there were... Uh, uh, were, were were people who came from a Jewish background, and the word the, the the kind of the wording is something which is very often associated with anti-Semitism. Sometimes on the left, be it said, as well as on the right. But it's it's also about uh, being opposed to trade agreements, uh, and the bit which are absolutely crucial to American foreign policy, if you like. But and American involvement abroad, internationally, militarily. Well, I think one one way of looking at at, at the alt right and its expression through Breitbart is to think that you know Andrew Breitbart himself was very was in favour of really of blowing everything up, and by everything he meant the establishment, and that included large parts, probably the majority of what we would have come to regard as 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 the republic establishment and one part of that certainly would be the idea of the you know the the, the American imperial mission or whatever you want to characterize it the, the 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 global policeman all those all those kinds of ideas were sort of antithetical to the to the kind of position which which Breitbart and it seems Bannon although we'll, we'll see now in, in in real life terms when he when he's there in the West Wing uh, that they hold so it is in a way um, some commentators have said that this is a position which is not new uh, that it's that it's merely the re-emergence of a strong political stra- 
Ukraine in American history uh, has tended to emerge at times of economic pressure and has tended also to emerge at times when there's a large amount of, 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 of immigration in the United States. Currently in the United States, uh, the, the number of the proportion of the population who were born outside the United States is at its highest since I think the 1920s and the 1920s was the last time that you saw a nativist upsurge of this sort and perhaps not coincidentally you also saw phrases like America first and an argument for for trade barriers and isolationism and those kinds of ideas. Now Steve Bannon himself he's been appointed uh, by by Trump as his chief uh, um, advisor uh, he is being accused of explicit racism of misogynism of anti-semitism as, uh, as you said what's his background? He um, he's from a working class uh, Irish American Democratic voting in his in in his own words uh, background. He served in the U.S. military and then he went on into the financial sector in the 1980s. He worked for Goldman Sachs and he made a lot of money with them. He went then moved into the entertainment industry where he made a lot more money, primarily I think from buying a chunk of the residual rights to the TV sitcom Seinfeld. Um, so was very rich by his uh, by his early 40s and then turned his attention to right-wing and conservative politics. And there isn't any likelihood that he'd be shifted, basically. The, the, the nomination is, it doesn't have to go to Congress. Uh, I no, think this is not an official staff position yeah. in the sense that he's not a member of cabinet, in other yeah. words. There is no way for it to be validated. It, it, is, it is fascinating that Trump has set up this duopoly of, of power directly below him with, on the one hand, Reince Priebus, who in a way is the classic Republican establishment insider, albeit one who made very made, took great care to stay close to Trump throughout the campaign and on the other hand um, this absolute in, insurgent committed to committed to destroying as much of the traditional Republican Party agenda as the traditional Democratic Party agenda. Yes, the tension uh, inevitably there. Uh, now the New York Times is saying uh, in the last few days that there's talk of Breitbart uh, opening uh, bureaus in Paris, Berlin and Cairo. Um, how do you think that, that it'll go down in, in Europe? Well, Breitbart already has an office in London, um, and it already has a, uh, it has columnists in the UK, including Nigel Farage, uh, and uh, a, a journalist who some of our Irish listeners will be familiar with, Mary Ellen Sinon, who used to write for the Sunday Independent, and a number of other people. And it, it clearly, according to uh, according to the editor of of, of Breitbart, um, they clearly see an opportunity in the kind of rise in right populism which has occurred already in some European countries and looks set to, to, to increase further if the opinion polls are to be believed with the French elections than the, the Dutch elections next year. So they see it, they see a business opportunity in Europe and it's probably it's, it's, it's worth remembering that these are all privately owned businesses as well. Thank you very much, Hugh. Thanks to Lara Marlowe, Derek Scally and to Hugh Linehan and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.